0: Support for this episode comes from Lexus. What emotion fits in the palm of your hand? Can you wield the power of gravity? What does exhilaration sound like? Only Lexus asks questions like these, because they believe the most amazing machines aren't inspired by machines. They're inspired by you. Not only has Lexus asked these questions, they've answered them. Discover the answers at Lexus.com curiosity. Lexus. Experience amazing.
1: Uh, I am from the Deep South, Uh, I serve a church in a small town in the Deep South, Uh, it happens to be a Baptist church. I am the only voice they hear from the pulpit every week. I am the one that goes to the hospital beds and that visits people who are homebound and visits new babies in the hospital.
0: I don't know this man's name. And you won't either. That's because he worries he'd lose his job if people found out about his secret.
1: I don't believe in the existence of hell, which I think would be a problem. People have been fired. People's jobs have been threatened for a lot less. I want to be a minister and I want to be a Christian because I believe that God is all-loving and all-merciful and all-powerful and all-forgiving, and I can't reconcile that understanding of God with the understanding of a God who simultaneously condemns people to eternal damnation.
0: My name is Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X from TED. In each episode of the show, we hear the story of an anonymous person. We give light to an idea in hiding, and then we go deeper, exploring this idea with the help of others.
1: My conviction, uh, the thing that I I love about Jesus, the thing that strikes me over and over and over again is how time and time again, He meets people where they are. And my job as a pastor uh, is to have generosity of spirit as best as I'm able. Crafting a sermon, crafting a message, crafting a prayer, uh, choosing hymns, uh, amplifying scripture in a way that uh, is hopefully meeting those people where they are, is uh, that's that's what I do.
0: Meeting people where they are. In leadership, that means respecting the beliefs of the people you serve, even when they contradict your own. That's the idea we're gonna explore today. Whether you're a Baptist preacher in the Deep South, a teacher, a politician, your role as a leader is as much about reaching out to people where they stand as it is about bringing them to you. Oh, real quick before we keep going, I should clarify something. Our guest is a minister at a Baptist church in the South, but he's not a Southern Baptist. Those are two different denominations and they have different approaches to leadership and scripture, among other things. When did you decide or discover that you did not believe in hell
1: i don't think i've ever believed in it um at least as long as i've been thinking about it to me hell has always been more of a caricature than a than a reality something uh, illustrated by little cartoon devils flames of fire around them uh pumping their pitchforks up into the air.
0: You don't believe in someone with a scorecard that's counting points that waits till you show up Correct. and shows you your score and says, yeah. no go. Correct. I'm curious, like, what traditionally um, is the belief system or rhetoric in the Baptist faith that is not you.
1: Well, that's part of the problem. Um, Baptists are a grassroots denomination. Uh, we were coming out of the give you your your daily history lesson. Yes, please. <laughs> coming...
0: I'm, a, I'm a Jew from New York, yeah, so I yeah. will take all of the history I can get well, from
1: the coming out of the Protestant Reformation. You know, beginning with Martin Luther. Every Baptist church that you visit across the world is a democracy. Uh, no one from on high tells us how to assemble, what to believe. Uh, Scripture alone uh, is really the historical rallying cry of Baptists. You're not going to find a uh, uniformity of Baptist opinion uh, on hell, but the practice is that the church votes 50% plus one uh, to bring the minister in or the ministers in who are helping to guide them through Scripture. So
0: whether or not your congregation likes you Mm -hmm. and (laughs) wants you— Is actually a huge deal yes. in this faith.
1: Yes. Unlike other uh, denominations, uh, there's no council. Uh, there's no pope uh, that's got my back.
0: <laughs> so it's it's really a a popularity. Yes. Contest.
1: We are we are not unfamiliar with mobs in the Baptist church.
0: Wow. <laughs> so so when you consider having what is an outlier belief and. Mm-hmm could potentially be a pretty controversial one. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense then that it feels like there's a pretty significant risk in a c- congregation, your congregation, um, who are also, in a strange way, your employer yeah, yeah. finding out about
1: that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I know a uh, minister who was a young adult's uh, minister and he um, uh, kept a blog uh, in which he raised difficult questions uh, about uh, faith and suffering, and and uh, you know the the hard to uh, answer questions. And so, the music minister at this church, who was a self-proclaimed uh, fundamentalist, uh, he caught wind of the blog and he uh, went online and he read it and he was mortified and he started cutting and pasting from the blog and rearranging sentences into an email under the subject line heresy and he sent it out to the entire congregation and uh, got the minister fired uh, for that. Um, And in the process, uh, not only did they get the minister fired, but half the church left because they couldn't believe the way that he was treated.
0: Do you know of anyone specifically who has come out as <laughs> not believing in hell and whether there have been consequences to that specifically?
1: Not personally, but the the higher profile, especially among evangelicals, uh, is a guy named Rob Bell. Uh, in his early 30s, he was sort of the fresh-faced with loads of charm, minister, uh, writer. Uh, he was loved. And um, then one day he wrote a book called Love Wins. And in this book, he questioned uh, the nature of uh, eternal damnation. Uh, He questioned the existence of hell. And virtually overnight, he was disowned by his evangelical followers.
0: Wow. But his concern is for more than his own job. Churches like his have been declining in numbers in the last decade. In fact, a recent Pew study found that religious affiliation overall is going down in the U.S. And in communities with small churches, that means the loss of many of the services unique to these congregations. The outreach, the fundraising, the hospital visits he mentions, that deep-rooted personal connection to a town and its residents. The health of his congregation and the resources it provides depends on steady leadership. If he spoke out, he would not only risk his job, he would risk driving people away from an already vulnerable congregation.
1: In ministry, there are lots of, of struggles that you can choose to enter into. Mm. Uh, and that is perhaps one struggle that I could choose to uh, fight with my congregation and you know charge up that hill. But we are a smaller church, which over the past couple of decades, you know, have been uh, losing members. Uh, And so it it is a choice that I make to not wage this battle for fear that uh, we'll just continue to bleed.
0: He hasn't shared his feelings about hell with anyone in his congregation, and he avoids the subject altogether in sermons, choosing instead to emphasize an all-loving God. But even though he isn't explicit about hell when he preaches, he understands the way it fits into the fabric of people's lives.
1: I think the uh, (laughs) implicit communication where I live in the Deep South, whether you um, go to church or not, whether you grew up going to church or not, whether you have faith or or you're not a person of faith, um, is that hell and heaven are these two Uh, concurrent uh, modes of existence which happen in the afterlife and you're going to one or the other. And that's, there's something comforting about that symmetry. Where I live, there's a a billboard uh, in the middle of the state that everybody knows about. If you've ever driven to get to the beach, you know about uh, the sign that says, uh, go to church or the devil will get you. (laughs) And when you mention it, people just kind of chuckle to themselves because it is what is. <laughs> so
0: it's it's almost like the, the understanding of a literal hell of mm. a place where people are sent for eternal damnation. Mm. It's built in.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, down there, it's the easiest, uh, cheapest insurance you can get. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all you got to do is go to church. Um, for a lot of people, that means uh, it's a get out of hell free card.
0: <laughs> you mentioned that The concept of hell is comforting, perhaps, to people. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of going to church as being a type
1: of insurance. Yeah, fire insurance.
0: Oh, my (laughs) goodness. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I wonder then, just one step further do you think for certain people they need hell?
1: Yeah, I think so. That's a good question. Um, It's comforting insofar as they go to church. It justifies uh, them. But the problem with hell is uh, it automatically creates a comparison uh, between the person who is glad they're not going to hell, but it gives them license uh, to speak ill of all those other folks that aren't going there, the people that don't believe like I do, the people that don't look like I do, the people that don't go to my church, that don't believe in my God, that don't practice my faith.
0: Right. It's a real um, license to exclude.
1: Yes, which is you know, anathema to Jesus, uh, just plain and simple. His, his ministry was one of... Uh, inclusion, uh, and radically so. He included people that were always in the margins of existence. The thing that I love about Jesus just speaking physically, he goes to people. Uh, he's not in some ivory tower you know, which is is an important distinction to make because the, the way that we do church, the way that we do religion, the way we do spirituality very often is we expect people to come to us, to ascend to our level of thinking, to be physically present in these great cathedrals and sanctuaries. Um, but for Jesus, he met the people where they were, um, you know, not just in terms of physical location, uh, but in terms of where they were as people, where they were along their journey of life, uh, where they were uh, in the margins of of existence.
0: You know, I don't think in a million years if you had asked me, like, if I had anything in common with a Baptist preacher (laughs) from the Deep (laughs) South, if I would have said yes, Uh. but hearing you talk about meeting people where they are, is very close to what I do as a poet. Hmm. Um, there are so many people who carry a lot of baggage or of yeah. poetry yeah. and already know that they don't like poetry or already have decided that poetry isn't for them, yeah. et, cetera, et cetera. And every time I get in front of a crowd, um, I am making a ton of decisions both beforehand and also in the moment yeah. to figure out who is in this room with me, uh-huh. um, what do they need, yeah. what are they comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and so I love that that you want to meet them where they're at, but also find a way to help them mm-hmm. grow.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, my job as a pastor uh, is to have generosity of spirit as best as I'm able. Uh, and there is, you know, every pastor, uh, hopefully, has, a, has sort of a um, twofold uh, personality. You know, they are not only a pastor, there's also a prophetic task that pastors are called to to take on. Um, yes, you are beloved. And uh, what uh, a professor of mine used to say is, you know, there's no way that God uh, could love you any more than God does right now, uh, which I think is true. Uh, that's That's this grace that we sing about, you know, this amazing grace is that we are acceptable just as we are. We were created to be this way. But there is also uh, growth to be had for all of us, no matter who you are.
0: So like this guest, maybe you're in a leadership role. And maybe your convictions don't always match the people you serve. What do you do? Do you give up? Do you use your platform to make a bold statement? Or do you find other ways to bridge that ideological gap? In a minute, we'll hear how our guest stays true to himself while also serving the needs of his congregation and finding ways to grow together as a church. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X. Today, we've been speaking to an anonymous Baptist preacher from the Deep South who doesn't believe in hell. He's not ready to reveal this belief to his congregation for fear of losing his job or fracturing the church. But he has figured out a way to use this difference in ideology as an opportunity to lead in a gentle and nuanced way. If you have this congregation of folks that you care about, that you seek to both provide for and lead forward, I'm curious, like, what are the ways in which you're seeking to shift the culture that you're in? Um, You know, if not necessarily towards a day where everyone is comfortable with there being no hell, Mm -hmm. maybe there are other things that you're trying to help them see differently.
1: Yeah. Um well, I I spoke earlier about um certain battles that we're willing to uh to fight. Uh and the the struggle that I've been willing to take on uh revolves around LGBTQ inclusion. Um, I am an ally and they have been receptive. Not everyone agrees with me. Uh, some people would just assume my didn't mention it uh, as often as I do uh, in sermons, but they've hung with me uh, because like you said, I I try to do it carefully and with love.
0: Has it been smooth sailing?
1: For the most part. um, People have, I think some, uh, some hearts and minds have been changed. Um, I I think I've been a witness to that. Um, The church, uh, We have not adopted official language of inclusion. Um, I'm hopeful that one day we will. I think that's important. Uh, Words matter. Uh, And we pride ourselves on being uh, an inclusive church and we truly are. And and, um, no one is going to be, you know, kept out or sent away. Early in my career in ministry, um, there's a, a gentleman, uh, I'll call him Thomas. So Thomas had been visiting the church for a while. We had never really spoken, but one day after church, he hung around a little bit and wanted to shake my hand and say hi, that he enjoyed, uh, church there. And I said, great. And did what I always do. I invited him to grab a cup of coffee at the coffee shop nearby. And he said, sure. And we hadn't been sitting there long. Um, before Thomas uh, took me by surprise. Since I was just meeting him, he um, felt comfortable uh, in telling me that he was gay, Uh, and then he quickly followed it up sheepishly by saying, uh, I'm working on it, uh, as if to let me know that it's not an issue, uh, that it's not going to be an issue in the church. And I listened to him talk. He told me all about growing up in a a small town, about his disapproving father, about running away from home as a young man in the 80s. Uh, He told me about uh, how difficult it was uh, living through the AIDS epidemic, about how many friends uh, he lost. Uh, he shared with me his story, which was heartbreaking. And when he was finished telling it, um, as gently as I could, as kindly as I could, uh, I told him, Thomas, you should know that I have a hard time believing in a God who would uh, create you one way and then judge you for it, and uh, he seemed stunned by by that. Um, we talked about my opinions of scripture, what the Bible really says and does not say and, and, uh, the whole thing. And we, you know, we sat there for like the whole afternoon and, um, it never felt like a better minister than I did in that moment. Um, when our conversation ended, you know, we hugged and I said, I'll see you on Sunday. He said, great. Uh, then on Sunday morning I showed up at church, like always, um, I went to my office door, and I saw a note taped to it. uh, And it said, uh, Pastor, thank you for your time, thank you for your attention, but I cannot be a part of a church that accepts me as I am. Sincerely, Thomas. Uh, And I haven't seen him since. Um, And I think about him a lot. That was uh, many years ago. I wonder how he's doing. I wonder if he's still looking for a church. Um, I I wonder if he's listening to this, uh, and if he is, or if any of you are like Thomas, um, if any of you know what it feels like to be that alone, uh, to be that cut off, to live in that kind of hell, I hope that uh, you'll take some of this to heart and um, maybe that kind of hell which is real, hell on earth, uh, won't feel um, like such an eternity.
0: After our conversation, and with our guest's permission, I shared his story with someone intimately familiar with the role of leading a congregation. I'm
2: an ordained
0: Lutheran pastor. Nadia boltz Weber is the founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, and most recently, author of the best-selling book, Shameless. Nadia's church is still thriving, but she's no longer the pastor there. That's because she spends her time on the road, speaking to religious and non-religious audiences.
2: My leadership style and the the origin of my authority um, is not because I'm the best Christian in the room ever. Uh, You know, I sort of carved out a career as being a sort of almost spiritual anti-hero, I think. (laughs) But, uh, so I've not been in the position that our friend has been in. But I think that um, the theology matters because I have this tattooed in Latin on my wrist that we're all simultaneously sinner and saint, 100% of both all the time. Speaking of leadership styles,
0: Nadia is a very different kind of leader. Our guest has to be subtle about his personal beliefs. For example, instead of saying, there's no hell, he preaches about love and acceptance. But Nadia is upfront about her beliefs and disbeliefs. Whether she's on the road or preaching at the church she founded, people come to hear her precisely for her outspokenness. But despite those differences, on a fundamental pastor-to-pastor level, there's a lot that resonates with Nadia about our guest's story.
2: The thing I really admired, uh, really deeply, about him was that he—he's so pastoral, in the sense of going, this job isn't about me; it's about meeting these people where they're at, and serving them instead of it being okay. I need to make this congregation into a bunch of little. Um, copies of myself. Mm. And so I, I just sort of respected that instinct that he had that, um, you know, it's a very countercultural one to say something's not about me. You know, we live in such a narcissistic society um, that's all about getting my needs met and all the self-care and all the self-expression and the individualism and me, 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 and so I found the humility of him saying, it's not about me, I have to meet these people and care for them where they're at, even if I disagree with some belief they hold. I found that to be really moving, actually.
0: There's so many intricacies in ministry, and both our guest and Nadia are examples of that. They disagree with certain aspects of traditional Christian ideology, like eternal damnation, but in those gaps, they find ways to lead new and complex conversations on faith.
2: For a lot of people, hell means just feeling a separation from God mm-hmm. here on Earth, or hell is the result of the uh, systems of injustice that we see perpetuated in in uh, in our cultures. Uh, when we're in active addiction, or when we're we have some secret that we're living out, nobody knows about it except for us, and it's we aren't punished for our sins. We're punished by our sins. The, huh. the stuff that we sort of act out in life that is not from the best part of us causes suffering and separation in ourselves and other people.
0: I think that makes so much sense that like the act of the sin is also the punishment itself. Um, I wonder, you know, to someone who f- has been wronged, or sinned against or you know lost a loved one to murder the reassurance of hell as a form of consequence how how do you respond to someone who's like that person did this horrible thing I don't want to hear that like don't worry their hell is the fact that they did it I want to know that like there's going to be some kind of consequence for that behavior in a in a spiritual way.
2: Hmm. I think that's a very human thing that we want to hurt those who have hurt us. But when we take that thing that we have that I that I say is in one of the darker parts of our hearts, and we project it real big, and we say, "Oh no, it's not us; it's God who wants this." Then we're on thin ice, theologically, and we do it all the time. These projections—we project the worst parts of us and say, "God must also be like this," <laughs> you know. Right. Now, now, like believing in grace and forgiveness is is not a pony ride, though. Just to be clear, I mean, to believe that um, that everyone is is sort of saved, that that all people will be redeemed at some point, that there is a life with God that includes all people. That sounds like a fluffy sort of idea, but it's awful when I think about like, well shit, that means with my luck I'll be seated at the heavenly banquet between like Ann Coulter and a racist cop, right? So it's not it's not as comforting an idea as people might think because that idea challenges that darker part of my heart and makes me acknowledge it's there. The fact that I would rather them not receive the same grace I receive. The impulse within the human being to determine who is good and who's bad, who's in and who's out, is one that is just sown so deeply within the human being. So, for some people, yeah, it manifests in this idea of eternal reward and punishment, but I think it's something we all carry on some level. And, you know, what's fascinating is what I've seen in um, in spaces where the theological standpoint is, look, you can't earn something that you've already been given, that um you know those kind of messages that have a grace focus rather than a uh, try and be good focus. Uh, people end up being real good. <laughs> Interesting enough, mm-hmm. they uh, like when when they're told um, this isn't about you making yourself good enough to be worthy of God's love. You're deemed worthy, and just because you're. You carry God's image and, you know, that grace is more powerful than our than anything else in the world. Like people end up making really good choices for themselves without the church having to tell them what those choices need to look like. Um, so it, huh. it, in Lutheran theology, we talk about freedom. That's the freedom we have, and, and when you're free from the project of spiritual self-improvement and progressive sanctification, improving and earning your worthiness, you're actually free from that, but you're also free to serve the neighbor with, like, an open heart. You're free to serve, actually, to be of service in this world.
0: The short question is, what's next? Do you think that there's a day that you're moving towards when you can talk about that belief freely in front of your community? Do you think that you can get them there in a kind of roundabout way by talking about God's love and not ever mentioning hell, and that's the way to do it? Um, Does it weigh on you to not share that part of yourself with them? I guess you know what now.
1: Yeah, um, I'd like to think that uh, uh, I could get there one day. Uh, I hope so. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to how to answer because um, I have been what I have been doing what you mentioned just not talking about hell. I, I speak much more about love than about hell, and I. If I do that the rest of my life, then I'd be okay with that.
0: Sincerely X is produced by Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Kim Netterfain-Petersa, Destry Sibley, Eva Waltriver, and Chloe Shasha. With the help of Angela Chang, Janet Lee, Michelle Quint, Jesse Baker and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Lorena Aviles Trujillo. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X.